We are Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, our regular weekly podcast on Pro Cannabis Media and PCM TV, now streaming 24-7 on Roku, Apple Plus, and of course, our own website, ProCannabisMedia.com. As always, we look for the movers and the shakers in the cannabis industry, and we think we found one, uh, someone who has made an appearance on a Green Rush Live show with us on Friday afternoons, but now we got them all to ourselves. His name is Randall John Meyer, right? Am I right on that? Did I get the name right? Yes, Jimmy. Thank you. Thank God. You know, you never know, but that's a pretty simple one, straightforward. Tell us, as the executive director of the Global Alliance for Cannabis in Washington, D.C., what exactly is your role and what is the mission of your organization? So my job is to represent the cannabis industry in D.C. and to make sure that we're advocating to get its best interest passed legislatively, regulatorily, and to help make sure that we're communicating with the American public about what the industry is doing, where it's heading, and how it could be involved in the industry and how it could eventually benefit from the industry as consumers. Those are all the kind of things that a a traditional trade association does in other industries, and and we do those functions for the cannabis industry. And um, how many members do you have in your organization right now? I think the last count I stood at 16, 17, including our standardization members. Uh, I know that our, our con from DNA Genetics is always excited to keep bringing in new people. Good. Well, we were looking for growth in, in all sectors. And of course, as you know, some of those uh, percentages now of, of polls that are out there, uh, close to 70% of most Americans see the importance of perhaps legalizing this cannabis product. Uh, I believe 90% see the medicinal value of this plant. And yet we're still educating those in Washington, D.C. who make the policies and keep people like you busy. Um, How has the battle been going in the trenches and has the introduction of this this public document, this public draft that Senators Schumer, Wyden and Booker have put out over the last few weeks, has it increased the discussion or is everybody on vacation right now? (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's definitely increased the discussion, and uh, I, I wish that uh, they had timed it so that it didn't come out for the August vacation of D.C. Uh, for, for their viewers that aren't familiar, August recess is usually a month off in D.C., but uh, most of the cannabis industry now is working on uh, reviewing this, making sure everyone gets their, their opinions in, talks to the offices about stuff that affects their businesses and you know something in there that provides some opportunities for improvement. And everyone in the cannabis industry, from advocacy groups to, to industry groups to just uh, you know outsiders who are interested in it, are are getting in and, and doing that sort of process of those offices. Um, and especially with the deadline for for that process being set to September first, it kind of jams us up during the the traditional recess break. <laughs> That's right. And, and I, I actually know a few other lobbyists in Washington D.C. who actually took a week off because they realized that. You know, no one was around for them to call on right now. However, I think that was part of the strategy, I think, of floating this bill now is to see exactly who is going to take the time to put out, put out a, uh, a public policy feedback paper for this, for this bill out there. Um, as you talk to people, what has been the overall reaction to the COA, the Cannabis uh, Administrative and Opportunity Act or bill? Optimism. So the, the biggest fear before this bill came out that I got from people on, on the right or the left, uh, lobbyist, industry advocate, 
is that it would just be a messaging bill. Everyone was terrified. Okay, so this will deschedule cannabis. It won't get to the policy issues. It won't deal with patient access issues, uh, grandfathering of products to make sure you have continued legacy products issues. Uh, and the bill does make an attempt at those things. It, it gets into them. Some people like how they do it. Some people don't. But the fact that that discussion is what is taking place now is a real change. Uh, and that is something that provides a lot of confidence and a lot of opportunity. The question isn't, okay, do we regulate cannabis? It's, does the FDA regulate it? Does TTP regulate it? And what parts do they regulate it? Does the USDA get in on the, on the agricultural side and regulate it over there? And then does it go to TTP or to FDA? And th those are really serious, interesting, and, and multi-billion dollar questions, frankly, that they're finally asking and the Senate Majority Leader's asking. Now, I know a lot of, uh, a lot of my colleagues in the industry like to, like to be a little bit downer on, on this bill or that bill. I like the process. Uh, I'm a process lobbyist. I like seeing things move forward. I like looking at it from more than one dimension. So when I see a process where the Senate Majority Leader is putting out a serious bill, you know, so, something where there's definitely opportunities to, to make it better for small businesses, opportunities to make sure that we're providing access for, for minorities and minority-owned businesses, uh, th those opportunities are definitely there and, and we're happy to be involved in those sorts of discussions. Uh, but when we also look at the other side, the Safe Banking Act, Last Congress, it only passed with 90 odd votes on the Republican side. Now it passes with over 100 Republican votes. Uh, Charles Koch uh, giving interviews in Forbes talking about how legalization should come around this Congress, and he wants to drive that effort. And NGACC is glad to be a part of that effort as well. And that is that changes the whole scope. If you compare the 117th to the 116th Congresses, you know we're currently in 117. It, it, it's just, it's different. The discussions is about how we get this done and when the time window of when it gets done is not if this pipe dream of legalization occurs. And, and that for me is just incredibly optimistic and encouraging. I, I started years ago as an aide and getting taken seriously in this issue on the Republican side, even as a, as a colleague and an aide was, uh, it was difficult. It, it was extremely difficult. And, and it's just completely different five years later. So I love seeing the process move forward. Uh, whether it's the Schumer bill or, or also looking at the votes in the way. You know, it's funny, uh, you mentioned where it was five years ago to where it is now. Um, we ran a story in last week's uh, weekly news that we call We Talk News here about a member of the cabinet from the former administration, a, a gentleman who was in charge of HHS, who is now on the board, who is anti-cannabis when he was sitting in the cannabis cabinet meetings, but is now sitting on the board of directors of a medical marijuana group in Georgia. You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly who I'm talking about. And you know, this isn't the first time that a politician has changed his or her stripes and gone over to the business side. I mean, John Boehner, being the, the board of directors of Acreage Holdings, um, certainly uh, comes to mind immediately as well. So again, it goes back to something we talked about even before we started recording. Are politicians more interested in their, their own financial worth and their stability? And is it still about me, myself, and I, as opposed to, gee, I was elected to be in this position. Maybe I should be listening to my constituents. Is it more about getting reelected as a politician than doing right by your constituents? Is that really what we're up against now? 
Well, I, I couldn't speak for all 535 members. Uh, <laughs> I, know there's, I know there's at least one or two who, who prefer for, for their own values to go over the constituents, and, and yeah. you have the other ones who, who don't care about their job at all compared right. to representing their constituents. Right. And then you get into the whole philosophical question of, you know, should I do what my constituents say or should I do what I know is best for my constituents? Uh, you know, the, the Edmund Burke, Thomas Jefferson question there <laughs> from, mm. from the old founding. Yeah. It, it, what we run up against really is, is this institutional inertia uh, of canvas reform at this point, because we have 70% as a public polling issue. And, and I love flipping that number to discuss it because it's not just 70% in favor, 90% oh, medical versus adult use between 70 and 90, it's 10% opposed. 10% think that prohibition is a good policy. 10, 10% think this is the right way to govern things. We know we can debate about the merits of the other side. We can debate about which state should do what in those areas. But by God, is prohibition a bad policy? And we know it. And that's that is important to carry across as well. And and that really is reflecting getting more and more. We had five Republican votes for the Moore Act, even though there's a lot of things in there that wouldn't be considered traditional Republican values, because because the prohibition, the economic consequence of it, the criminal justice consequence of it, it's so extreme that it does speak at this point to, I don't want to be in the 10% that says this really silly idea of prohibition that failed miserably with alcohol is something that's just succeeding vastly in the cannabis space. Right. And, and no, it's not. And, and there's been tremendous movement. I mean, you're at 18 or 19 states, depending on, you know, what, how you consider South Dakota, because they're still, you know, in, in litigation of some sort as far as the ballot question that the, the people wanted. But, you know, there's politics involved at the state level, too. One thing I did take away from the announcement of the federal uh, public draft bill, okay, was the fact that they, the, the senators really did say, you know what, we want it decriminalized at the federal level and leaving it up to the states as far as whether they want to legalize it or not. And, you know, if you step back and look at that big picture, that would be a win, I think, for all sides. And yet, I don't know how realistic it's going to be because it still has to be descheduled from that Controlled Substances uh, Act of uh, Schedule One, either off that whole schedule or down to a to a level that won't be controlled by big pharma. So there, you know, there there's not an easy way to find common ground in this particular industry or, or in this with this issue, is there? So descheduling is one of it's it, it's interesting because I find that. Uh... When it comes to that high level policy that, that you stated there, which is we should let the states do what the states are doing, mm -hmm. and we should let them fit and we should facilitate what they're doing among themselves. Mm -hmm. There isn't a lot of disagreement in that policy. It makes a lot of sense, Democratic side, Republican side, there's a lot of agreement there. Then you get to terms like decriminalize, deschedule, de uh, regulate it in this, uh, federally legalize. And half the time, we have to re-explain what these words mean with anyone we're talking to in different groups because people define them differently. Some people say decriminalize means deschedule, that deschedule means legalize, that deschedule means somehow you've legalized for the whole country and every state has to have legal cannabis, which is not the case. You, you, you'd be surprised how many times I have to explain that descheduling does not cause cannabis to become legal in any state where it is still under the state's Controlled Substances Act. Right. We have right. to explain that over and over, and those terms get really difficult. So part of part of the job that we try to make sure is to state it at a level of generality where everyone understands the world they want to live in. 
Now, now the polling tells us we want to live in a world where it's like alcohol. Politicians tell us we want to live in a world where the states aren't getting interfered with by the federal government, where we get the commercial advantages, where we can get our tax revenue, because the feds love tax revenue. <laughs> One way or another, they're going to get it. <laughs> Death and taxes, right. We understand that. Yep. And uh, that's it, it, those conversations are far more productive uh, to be having. And again, that's the result of the work that's been done over the last 15, 20 years in the States, since 1996, since in the early 1990s, right. building on, on the consistent experience of people with a medical program, with an adult use program to where there's an understood experience that people want to have, or there, there's a vision to the end of prohibition that makes sense. It isn't uh, someone showing up from a cell phone that's a burner with a Ziploc bag. Which, which is what politicians don't want. That is the image right. they do not want associated. That's, that's right. not the vision they're looking for. Right. But, you know, you, you mentioned taxes, and we, we always goof about that. Um, right now, the, the federal tax that's been floated out there at 25% is just freaking everybody out in the industry. And I'm, and I'm just wondering, and I've talked about this with other lobbyists too, isn't that just part of a negotiation process that you go in, you, you say, here's my number, and then you really know that the number you can live with is maybe half that, okay? That being said, even a 12% federal tax can put an awful lot of burden on the industry and in trying to figure out how do we ever make money? Because that's really why, that's what's driving this is investment dough is coming in because they see the projections for the size of this entire industry. They wanna get in now, but even if you get in now, you know, are the margins set up so that you can actually make money now, or are you going to have to wait years and years and years before you start to actually nibble down on that tax rate and break down those margins a little bit? Taxes usually don't go down is, right. uh, is one of the unfortunate truths there. So right. from, from the conversations that we've had and the intelligence we got, that the goal of these offices was to be on parity uh, with, with alcohol or with similar industries. That, that's okay. where they had Okay. Now, with the Moore Act process, um, that tax rate at 5% grading up to 8%, uh, it, there wasn't nearly as much consternation from industry and advocates over, over that rate. Still some grumbling over being a bit high from, from their perspective with that being there. The goal of the Moore Act wasn't to make it on parity federally with alcohol. The goal of that was to tax it in a way that would be efficient for, for, for the marketplace. And there's an opportunity for, for the Democratic Party to even come with its own consensus internally on what, on what that efficient tax rate is. Because if you look at uh, you know, tax foundations work, if you look at right or left think tanks, there's consistent agreement that the, the disparate tax rates over the states, localities, all the different taxes that are stacked, uh, it, for the federal government to come up with a heavy tax would be highly destructive to, to marketplaces in terms of price concentration. Uh, it would just become unaffordable for existing medical patients to use the legal market. Right. And a huge part of the public policy we're trying to drive is, is getting people to choose as consumers a legal product over an illicit product. Right. That, that's a public policy goal is right. to make the competition choice. Right. So. There's a lot of opportunity, I think, for, for advocacy groups and for in, industry groups both to be making that argument to, to Leader Schumer's office that this tax rate is something that isn't good for a new industry. You know, maybe in 50 years we need to be on parity with alcohol, or maybe in 100 years we need to be on parity with, with tobacco and alcohol for, for, tax, for the tax rate. But we're in an era where we're just ending prohibition, and uh, we don't want the marketplace to do what it did in 1934 to 1979 for beer, which is go from 800 producers down to 49. 
Right. Then we had to go through a whole bunch of small uh, craft food revolution public policies and tax credits and lowering interstate barriers to bring that 49 back up to the 6,000 and change that it is today for those brewers. Yeah. Uh, so, like, we, yeah. No, that's great. That's a great analogy uh, because I think everybody, when you talk about this, you know, I always equate it with look at alcohol, right? And, and to me, it, it's a, uh, a no brainer. Um, I, I wrote a, a blog when I first started this company that in 1937, the wrong drug was made illegal in that, imagine, if you will, trying to get alcohol legalized in the 21st century. What would those arguments look like and how much of a challenge would that be if you had cannabis legal for the last 80 years, right? It would have been, imagine, right? You're looking at me like, that would be almost impossible. Well, this product, I don't envy you, know, that you can die from this product, you know? Uh, you know, I mean, you can't from cannabis, but you can from alcohol, but, but really and truly, if you take it a little bit of a time, it's going to be, can you imagine? Can you imagine trying to be a lobbyist and, and get that passed now? Anyway. What are you going to do? It tastes really good. Your first try. <laughs> less filling. Tastes good. Tastes great. Less filling. Whatever it is. No, it, it, it would have been a challenge, needless to say. But think, yes, about, think about where we are right now. In 2018, we passed the Farm Bill making hemp, okay, quote unquote, legal, even though you and I both know that word legal is still up for debate, right? Very because, yeah. right? <laughs> They can't even figure out who should be in charge of managing the hemp crop and also those chemicals, those cannabinoids that can be derived from the hemp crop. And I'm talking about CBD, CBN, another magic cannabinoid in there. Um, that being said, who's and what? You're going to try and do the same thing at the federal government for cannabis? They can't even get hemp right. And hemp will not get you wasted okay will not get you intoxicated unless of course we're talking about delta eight which of course <laughs> is that other factor the human element man if they give you a little if they if you give an inch we're gonna take a mile right just oh, to figure out a way around the law that doesn't really exist right now for him so are you confident that this federal government that our United States federal government is going to come up with a, uh, an administrative way to regulate this? Do you think that's going to happen, really? Well, I'm, I'm very confident that they'll, they'll make improvements in the current system. Okay. Couldn't get much worse, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, so I'll say, I'll be, I'm going to, I'll answer optimistically because okay. I, I, I try to be an optimist. All right. I, it can't get any the heck worse than this current system. You, you're a hundred percent right. Total prohibition right. with nothing but destruction and burning of the product is the worst way to regulate anything. Right. Are, are we going to end up with a perfect system after the first federal statute of cannabis? No. I mean, heck, ask the alcohol guys if they've been happy with their statute <laughs> since the thirties. They're not. They're still That's not. They're still Very good. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Heck, uh, pharma is still not even totally happy with their statute. They're arguing with each other over botanical drug stuff and, and a whole bunch of other areas for, for other laws. And, and not even just relating to, to cannabinoids, everything that comes from a leaf that's, that's a possible chemical for anything they, they have issues over. Uh, new, new, new drug device stuff will be an issue for the FDA for the future. So I, I am confident that two things will happen with federal reform. One, it'll be far better than the current circumstance. And two, there will be a some kind of mistake that we'll have to fix in the future. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good way. Good, good way to look at that. You know, recently in the news uh, that, and I bring up the hemp thing, um, 
Charlotte's Web, which is probably one of the most respected um, non-intoxicating CBD-based products that's out there, uh, had applied to the FDA for as a dietary supplement. And the FDA said, no, we're not going to let you be a dietary supplement. So where, where do you think the FDA sees hemp and CBD ending up? Any idea on that? Nobody wants to regulate this stuff. It's like not in my backyard, really. They don't want to, oh, it's okay. We, we think it's legal, but we don't want to regulate it. We, we don't want to be in charge of that. I mean. I found this, this, this uh, saga, shall we say, of American lobbying quite interesting, the, the yeah. hemp CBD problem. Right. So I think two, two and a half years ago, before COVID, there was a hearing where the FDA was called into the House Energy and Commerce, one of the subcommittees. And they testified, we have current, currently, we have the statutory authorities to regulate hemp CBD as a dietary supplement, as a drug, as a dialect. We have all the statutory authority we need to do anything. We're going to be, we're going to be fine here, guys. We open up a rulemaking, people can put in science, everything's going to be awesome. No, that did not occur that way, as, as companies are now finding out. <laughs> this, no. this rulemaking is still open, uh, <laughs> and there's right. nine applications for, for the submission scientifically to be listed as a dietary supplement. So, uh, and Epidiolex is still a drug. So right. to date, you know, the, the, the FDA hasn't taken away the preclusive effect that the, the approved drug that is CBD, Epidiolex, has over other so, you know, the, the dietary supplement pathway is something I know uh, a couple of senators and a few House members have been working on specifically for CBD. But now we get into this larger question of one cannabinoid from one part of the plant in interstate. That's what we're talking about here. One. Right. One from one. There are two under the statutory law, like leaving aside the science, uh, plants, industrial hemp and cannabis. Yeah. Still, but cannabis is like called in the future stats. Um, and in those, there's hundreds of cannabinoids that are besides the CBD cannabinoids right. regulated from a whole flower extract perspective, from an individual perspective. And that's where I think a lot of this stuff starts to dovetail from a lobbying perspective. The problems get so broad and so broad that it does require a larger change. Each of these discrete issues foments uh, the, the larger problem, call it banking, capital access. This one cannabinoid that's all over the place that no one can figure out how to regulate from the FDA. Uh, the Olympians. <laughs> right. <laughs> Drug testing rules with, with Amazon and, and with the White House and all of these things. That's, that's a lot. Right. And, those, and, those, that's where you end up with a big try to fix everything where you have something better and some mistakes to fix later. <laughs> and I guess it just keeps government moving in whatever direction, right? Because it, it, it's the, you know, it, humans because we're we are frail beings and we're prone to mistakes we do we are always looking for that easy way out making it easier on us and yet at the government they seem to add so many ways to make it more and more difficult to actually understand what's going on and i i just don't know i you know i've talked to a lot of advocates and they're very fearful of leaving it up to the federal government to do anything about cannabis right now because they just don't feel like they have enough knowledge and that puts more pressure on you guys who are in the trenches having to educate the policymakers out there 
right? I mean, you're still, are you, you're still battling. It's a gateway drug. You're still battling, um, you know, all the myths and stereotypes that have existed for 80 years and they've all been refuted at this point. And yet, you know, we've made some progress, but to get it to the federal level, it just still, it still seems like they're going to try and screw this thing up from the get-go. There's always risk with the federal government that they'll make an improvident statute. Yeah. And they did with the Controlled Substances Act in Schedule One. Right. The, 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 the amazing thing we have today is that they've already screwed up so badly. <laughs> there is no interstate commerce in cannabis that's legal. It's, it's all illegal. Every, right. every bit of interstate commerce in cannabis is, is a mandatory minimum sentence uh, in federal law. It is just incredible uh, that, we, that we have the, the current status where so the, 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 what's amazing from an advocacy perspective is that we've gotten so used to this era where there's been no federal funding for enforcement. Now imagine if the federal government you know, decided it was going to enforce its current laws tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> How horrible that would be for hundreds of thousands of Americans, millions of Americans, patients, consumers, regular access users. Investors too. Investors, Investors too. The economy, right. I, there is no segment of the United States that would not be touched upon, including the, the donor class of both parties, most likely. Right. Heck, including those two members we were talking about earlier, uh, Mr. Right. Price and Mr. Boehner, who, who are right. sitting on boards of directors of these companies right now. Those guys would be affected if they decided to enforce their current laws. They've right. written such a bad law for the current circumstance in 1971. It's, right. it's so hard to, to justify keeping that in the books where we, we don't need to ask the federal government to figure out how to be the, the genius of cannabis reform, where it says, we are, we are the one government that's done it completely right, and this is how it should be done on every street corner and in every medical patient's household and every adult user's household from here to kingdom come. No, mm -hmm. that, is, that is not what we should be asking for as industry advocates. What we gotta ask them for is to facilitate trade that's going on right now and to do it properly to allow us to compete with other markets that they haven't let us compete with before. Because the, the federal government has, has not allowed a single company to compete in interstate trade with the illicit market, not one. It hasn't allowed for a company to compete on price and scale with uh, any of the cartels that are operating on federal lands. Right. Dumping federal pesticides, as, as Reptomophila likes to talk about, all over California. Right. You know, maybe the solution at this point isn't prohibition, but to have some law, even if it's imperfect, that allows those businesses to be competed with, to, to have competition on price and scale, right. to lose in the marketplace. Maybe that's the right way for the federal government to go. And when we talk about it, it will get the federal government to have that role. That, that more limited role that, that does take the existing good practices and just lets them scale up. We, we have a good approach there. And that's what we, we have to be driving for. Oh, let, let, let's hope so from your mouth to God's ears on this one, because I don't, I don't know. Now I will say this, um, recently, even in the last week, I've heard that the president um, is, sees the injustices with the cannabis and understands what Judge Thomas said, which was that the federal laws are contradictory. And he does recognize that perhaps there's some reason here to move forward with 
some kind of cannabis reform, which I know a lot of people don't think President Biden uh, will sign a bill or is anti anti weed or anti drug or whatever. You know what? As we've seen now, even his vice president, who was a DA in California, who was anti weed when she was doing the job that she was supposed to do, okay, has moved over to the other side and recognizes this that has to be changed. It, is that an inkling of hope too that's out there that you're clinging to and saying, you know, here's another example of why we really have to come to some reform activity here because the president is starting to come around and, and this is an opportunity and do these midterm elections um, create any kind of leverage at all to get something done? I think the, the president has a long bipartisan tradition. The presidency has a long bipartisan tradition over the last 15 years of providing consistent clemency for nonviolent cannabis offenders. I think that this administration is in a fine political position to do large scale clemency for, for the cannabis offenders that are currently there. In, in terms of uh, reform beyond that, I'll be honest, that is something that worries me as a lobbyist is the executive unilaterally trying to change uh, these rules. Because there's there's 40 or 50 years of precedent from from organizations like normal trying to use the administrative process to change cannabis's schedule one status. There's court cases in the 1970s and 80s, administrative petitions to the DEA to get rid of schedule one, to move to schedule whatever, to get it out of the schedules. And, you know, what's been made clear is that the attorney general's got a lot of discretion in this area. And Merrick Garland, uh, as, as a judge, is known for being careful and cautious. In a cautious approach to, to the cannabis schedules and cannabis reform contains with it a lot of preemptions from the Food, Drugs, and Cosmetics Act. I personally would not prefer for cannabis to be regulated as a Schedule II substance alongside some of the hard drugs in the Schedule II column. It doesn't make any sense from, right. from a legalistic policy or pharmacological perspective uh, for it to be a Schedule II substance or for it to even, and really arguably even to be in the schedules at all. Right. Uh, for, for considering the, both the addictive potential and what it does for patients, the, the actual burden that's there. And had research not been so biased under ONDCP and NIDA for the last 50 or 60 years, we might have been able to demonstrate that to scientific proficiency for the FDA at this point. Right. But here we are in this, this trap of Schedule 1. Um, so so I, there's stuff the administration can do, like reissuing the coal memorandum, making sure the Treasury Department isn't enforcing against uh, cannabis businesses. They could even maybe look to the IRS to not enforce against cannabis businesses for, for issues that are purely cannabis business issues instead of pure tax fraud uh, as right. opposed to 280E fraud, right. such as it would exist. <laughs> right. Uh, but those are, are different from kind of taking that wholesale reform because let's say they take it out of Schedule 1 and put it in Schedule 3. Who's the regulator? Right. What's right. the label that's allowed to be sold? What patients have access to Schedule Three cannabis right now? How much of it's uh, is it a whole flower in Schedule Three, or is it just THC, or is it just CBD, or is it just CBN? Is it only Delta Nine THC? What uh, about the new cannabinoids that we're going to discover now that we're doing research on this plant? Precisely, like those right. are those are substantial <laughs> questions, and and it, we've reached this kind of policy point where Congress really has to friggin' deal with the issue. It's right. uh, it, it's uh, the, the president's there to cut the margins around laws to make them work. But when the law fundamentally contradicts of the practice of millions of people on a routine daily basis, that is a problem that is appropriate for Congress to handle and most appropriate for Congress to handle. Well, I, I hope so. 
Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about interstate commerce. And of course, we're working in a completely hypothetical world here. And, and Bill Parcells used to tell me he hates hypothetical. Don't ask me hypothetical questions. It's pretty much what he said in those news conferences that I used to uh, cover on a regular basis. But what would be the fairest way if it became decriminalized at the federal level and then left up to the states, how, do you, how, how does that interstate commerce work if you're gonna take a legal product from one state, drive through an illegal state to get to the next legal state? How does that work? You let the, so the federal government has the power to say, if you're on the roads transporting between legal states, uh, you, you can't interfere with that. You can't just arrest those people for possession. How's that worked out for hemp so far? Just saying, okay, keep going. It worked out terrible for hemp, but worked out great for alcohol. Alcohol right. is not fine for. Hemp, hemp right. has a specific weird issue where, where the cannabinoids treated different from the plant with how the statute was written. Uh, and, and it's a weird policy quirk that just shouldn't be in the way that it is. And we shouldn't have a half measure where the DEA still has some control over an aspect of the plant because then we don't deal with the roads the way it is. If, if we use the alcohol statutes as they exist, you can get from legal state A to legal state B over the roads. Uh, you know, don't drop any on the way. That, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's different. <laughs> or if you are, let me know where it's going to be so I can go yeah, pick I'll, up I'll take it, sure. <laughs> Uh, I mean, heck, his loss is good. Yeah, I'll take it. There you go. There you go. Um, let me ask you a question about the lobbying game, if you will. There's quite a few groups out there. The NCIA, there's normal. The MPP is out there. Do you guys ever, uh, I mean, is there a group of lobbyists that get together and talk, hey, I'm working on this senator so you don't have to? How, how does that work? How do you guys make sure that you don't step on each other's toes when you're out there fighting for a lot of the same uh, issues. Oh, we, we enjoy pretty good warm relationships with each other. You know, I, I know my counterparts at NCIA. I, I talk with Aaron Smith over there, Steve Hawkins over at, U, at USCC, uh, Amber Littlejohn at MCBA, and I just talked uh, a couple of days ago and, and had a nice, pleasant chat. Uh, we, we, we have a pretty collegial atmosphere here in DC. We all get along, you know, pretty dang well and, and try to make sure that we're complementing each other's efforts. It's uh, not every industry has that. Uh, it, it depends a lot on, on a lot of good faith and personalities working together. And it, you don't have that in other DC industries, actually. It's, it's quite unique to us. Right. Well, uh, I think absolutely. it's because it's, it's us against them. I mean, it, it's really you guys against the world. And, uh, and, and you, you do have your industry's best interest at heart. I mean, that's your whole point, right? Oh, yeah. And our, our job is to represent the best interests of the industry as a whole, not any individual company, not any individual advocacy interest or political interest. It's what's the best for the most number of industry participants to meet, get the, the best amount of market share and for the most businesses to participate in this. What makes it so our businesses can be the most successful uh, possible as a whole? And that's what our job is to advocate for. Yeah. You know? and, and that is the mission of the Global Alliance for Cannabis Commerce, too, is it not? Yes, absolutely. We're here for removing federal prohibition and making sure that our businesses are succeeding. Uh, you know, we're going to be getting to interstate trade and to international trade. Those are those are inevitabilities with legalization. We want to make sure our businesses are successful in those circumstances and make sure that they continue to be successful. That's what shaping the laws are about. There you go. Well, uh, Randall, how do people, if they want to give you your their opinions about what you're doing down there, how do they get in touch with you? How can they find out where you are at? 
So we're at, uh, you can visit our website at globalcannabiscommerce.org. We're up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for, for Global Cannabis Commerce. Uh, I'm also available, Randall at globalcannabiscommerce.com. If you want to shoot me an email with your opinions, I get them pretty frequently from people. <laughs> on the internet, so. I bet I know a few of the people that are posting it, you're their opinions too. They're in my chat room all the time whenever we do a live show. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, Randall, it, it is, you know, the word fascinating comes to mind an awful lot when we think about where we're at now with this particular um, law and this plant and the stigma. It's an incredible time to be part of what I believe to be a historic moment. Uh, I can't believe that, you know, at this point in my career and age, that I'm talking about this as openly as I ever have in my life. And in a lot of ways, it's been cleansing. Do you find the same thing happening with you in that you're saying, wow, what a great time to be working on this because you know the work that you're doing is a in a historic time. You're part of history, aren't you? It's incredibly uh, humbling and mind-numbing. It's, it's mind-numbing that we are kind of on the precipice of ending a prohibition in American history. It, it is historic. And right. I'm just glad to have my small part in maybe trying to bring that across the finish line. And it, it is incredible. I, I was thinking about this actually over the weekend uh, it, that, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, I remember starting to use cannabis as a medical patient. I, I, I have a condition. I'm not a registered medical patient, but I, I was in New York before there was a medical law and started using as a patient uh, years ago. And I wouldn't have gotten through law school if it wasn't for, for cannabis. I, I, I have a very unique set of conditions. So that we're now reaching a point where I don't have to worry about a, a consistent supply of medicine where people in that same uh, position are, are could, aren't gonna have to worry about that same supply as medicine. Right. It's something kind of incredible. Uh, like it, it, it's, an, it's incredibly emotional, honestly, to, to know that you know I've gotten to play a small part in trying to change one of those rules that made it really hard for me and, and people like me and people I know to, to freaking get through life on a daily basis. Yeah. So that's, that's just something that's uh, really meaningful for me. Right. And then you look at, uh, you know, a major story like uh, Shakari Richardson getting tested uh, positive for cannabis, not being able to represent the United States because she used it to help her through a difficult time. And, you know, that story still is one of the biggest stories to emerge out of the Olympics before the games even began. Right. Yeah. And again, it, it's stuff like that that I see and I go, wow we really have come a long way, but we still have an awful long way to go. And I know you fight the stigma on a daily basis. So it's like everybody in this industry does. Um, it, it's coming down though. You're, you're feeling a soft, the fact that you actually are probably one of the more optimistic lobbyists that I've talked to makes me feel good. Okay, it really does moving forward on this. that I feel like, you know what? I, I like Randall's attitude. I, I, I feel much better about it now than I did before our conversation. So I thank you for that. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to give you that. I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime you want to, to get to give you another, another viewpoint on this stuff. I, there's been consistent progress over the last five years. I, I'll be honest, I don't quite understand the lack of optimism that a lot of lobbyists have in this issue. It might be you know, a little slower with bigger chunks in between, but you know, by God, we had over Republican, 100 Republican votes in the House for safe banking. Five years ago, that never would have happened. Never. 
no, that that is so true. Um, and yet, it, you know, we know what happened in the Senate, and there's still a lot of issues that happen. You, you got to find those 10 to 12 senators uh, that can step over to the other side. And uh, I'm glad uh, you're doing that. And I'm not, let's just say. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. No problem. That's uh, Randall John Meyer. He's the executive director of the Global Alliance for Cannabis Commerce in Washington, D.C. We want to thank him for coming on In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. And remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area. Now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first. Difference is building a solution for that individual. Not just a custom, here's a box, here's a video, here's how you make your VMS. We custom design and custom build every situation for exactly what the customer needs. And we keep the cost low. We have multiple tiers, you know, as far as what you're looking at on the cost side of things. If you want a one-time, you know, where you just pay one initial cost, we have that. If you want to maintain your system and have the highest protection and highest capabilities and highest upgrades at all times, we have different plans for you. But we scale it so it's scalable and affordable 100%. Media programming is available live and on demand on our Facebook page at Pro Canna Media, on Instagram at Pro Cannabis Media, on LinkedIn also at Pro Cannabis Media, on YouTube and YouTube Live on Pro Cannabis Media, Twitter at Pro Canna Media, and on twitch.tv backslash Pro Cannabis Media. So, like, share, and subscribe to all of our content, newsletters, and shows live or on demand. We are Pro Cannabis Media.